The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink. And uh, I am joined today by my friend, uh, Shovik Ray. He is the VP and head of IT and of information security and vendor management at West America Bank today. He lives in San Ramon, California, and his birthplace was Port Blair, India. Um, his wife, and her name is? Shovra. And two daughters. What are their names? Saisha and Shriya. The one, who's in elementary school? Ashriya uh, is. And then uh, in middle school? It's Saisha. Saisha. And they have one Aussie doodle named Ludo. Uh-huh. All right. Just turned two. <laughs> Just turned two. <laughs> and uh, he has an MBA in international finance and management of technology. Thanks so much for being here. Sure. You know, it's a pleasure. You and I met. So I was... One of my clients was Bank of the West, mm -hmm. and you were working there. What, what was your position at Bank of the West? I was SVP uh, running technology vendor management uh, that I started there as a function. And in about five, six years that I had built it, uh, we went ahead and uh, looked at setting up and using and leveraging BNPP's offshore setup. So mm -hmm. I was part of setting up the whole offshore operations uh, for primarily technology, and then we also ex expanded into operations. So the last couple of years there was focused on that. And I, the last role that I was at there was heading the global uh, technology management services function uh, for uh, Bank of the West. And it, it was a great seven years I spent yeah. there. Well, I remember somebody told me, that like, you got to meet this guy, Shovik Ray. <laughs> and uh, I hunted you down at a golf tournament. That is correct. On the putting green. <laughs> that, is, that is correct, where I was trying to be pretty embarrassing, I believe. <laughs> well, we were, we were both trying to win a putter or something like that. That is the, correct, the, yes. The, um, I, I, I remember, and it was, I think, one of those cancer community work that Bank of the West does, and, you know, it's it's a good great great place to be able to do something so oh yeah it was awesome. I, I still was... remember you know that that tournament when we were together with well, that the the cancer support community that is right which is an awesome mm -hmm. organization for people who were um, dealing with cancer mm -hmm. and it's almost like uh almost like a 12-step program type thing where people mm -hmm. can go in who have cancer mm -hmm. and they can try to figure out okay how do I walk my how do, how do I walk my way through this mm -hmm. you know how do I tell my family yeah. How, how do I deal with it myself? Because mm -hmm. it's almost like they're on an island out there by themselves. So it was great to be involved in something like that. Yeah. So you and I met there. You you have 20 plus years of banking and financial services experience. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I was surprised by is you're a big Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> well, well, growing up in the 80s. Oh, I me guess. too, man. Growing up in the 80s, right? That kind of talks about your age. Uh, I think just... We've seen so many performers through the years. Certainly, you always connect to, you know, certain times in your life. And so, so you know, growing up with that music, uh, 
Certainly, one of the things that has always stood out for me for Michael Jackson has been the ability uh, that he had to both sing and dance at that level. You would see a lot of performers, but uh, what he could do was always mind-blowing. And probably at a certain point of time in your life, when you connect with it, it's it's hard to you know get out of it. So always was a big fan of him. I remember that, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but he came out on... It was some kind of uh, anniversary for something. Do you remember, Ed, what was an anniversary for one of the recording companies or something like that? Motown. It was Motown's ah. 25th or something like that. And that's when he came out and did the moonwalk for the first mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was crazy. Yeah, yeah, I remember I was a kid at home watching uh-huh. that, and I was like, my yeah, jaw just what dropped. just happened, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And like, here I am... Uh, kid living in the middle of illinois trying to moonwalk <laughs> yeah and then i was as you were touching upon port blair i was born in the islands far southeast in india that also is a place that even a lot of indians don't know well enough it's far away from mainland so a lot of the electronic media at that time was we would probably you know see stuff way after it's actually happened but we still you know got to do that so uh these were just amazing moments that you never forget. And, you know, obviously now you get bombarded with a lot of electronic media, but it wasn't that much at yeah, that time. Not back so then. those those few bites, they live with you way longer, right? So and what so, year did you graduate from high school? So high school was 1991, which okay. is the 12th grade. You know, back there, you know, you then I went into engineering, 1991. Okay, I graduated yeah. in 1990. So we're almost neck oh, and almost neck, there. Yeah. you know? yeah. Um, and same thing when I was, I was in a really small town in Illinois mm-hmm. and, uh, we got MTV way later than mm-hmm. everybody else. And mm-hmm. I remember when we first got it, I'm like, Oh my God, I got to see this. It's the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. And my parents are like, turn that off. It's right. horrible. <laughs> right. Well, we got television, uh, first, I think I was in, uh, we had a, a thing in the family. My dad had said if me and my sister both came first, so there is this concept of being, uh, you know, graded in school where you actually are first, second, third as oh, yeah. person in the class. Yeah. So both of us, me and my sister, got first in class. So I think this was fourth grade for me and first for my sister. That's when TV came home. First time. That's so, right? awesome. so it was it was relatively newer to have those things. And we had two channels. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So speaking of dance, your wife and your daughters are very into dance. Yes. So what kind of dance do they do? Well, it's quite a bit. So my wife, as such, was trained in Indian classical, Bharatanatyam, uh, that is called, which is known to be like the oldest classical dance form okay. in the world from, you know, thousands of years ago. Now, she was trained in that, but as she progressed, she did get trained into many different forms of folk dance and some of the international forms. Uh, but as it would happen, she moved into you know, working, she did her MBA and so on. And dance was put behind in the closet. Yeah. Uh, So years later, I think she started to relive that dream with her daughters coming up. Uh, With both my daughters, they do Western classical as well as Indian classical. So that would include doing ballet and then they do jazz. Some do, uh, it's a mix. One does more of hip hop as well as Ballet, one is more on jazz, ballet, uh, doing lyrical, 
And uh, right now I see them mixing up a lot of that. So my wife does choreography and fusion. So she's got the help of daughters to bring in the Western and she give, she's got all the Eastern pieces. So it's a lot of, I think, dance energy at home. And while I have two left feet, uh, I am behind the lenses and kind of taking the videos, being the support for them. And uh, it's been a fun journey to see how uh, you know, family gets around doing some of these activities. And a lot now has happened that in the community, uh, they've got, we've got friends and family, and uh, we will probably touch upon it. We've been involved in a philanthropic organization uh, in the last four years, which is local. And a lot of that group comes together. And What's, then, what's that group called? Uh, it's called Agomoni, A-G-O-M-O-N-I. Um, it was mainly a social come philanthropic organization that we started. It's over, you know, 150 families now oh, wow. together. And we've been working in things like supporting uh, this year with all the COVID work. We did a lot of work, people themselves sitting and actually sewing masks and oh. PPE. And then we worked with the hospitals and the cities to donate that work. Uh, we've been helping on the fireside uh, helping, you know, the California fire departments, supporting, making some, I would say, good fundraising projects. So we did fundraising for Meals on Wheels, which is for veterans out in the Tri-Valley where yeah. we are. So working with the authorities, local authorities, the city, the county, working with the food, ba food banks. Uh, we do some community. Generally, we've been doing every year. This year is going to be slightly different. We do like for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, get some, you know, dinners and food for the needy. So those kind of things have actually brought that group closer together. And they would do sometimes fundraising events or they would do just entertainment projects. And, you know, dance would be one of the forum that would bring a lot of this. I remember when the when we started with uh, COVID, we didn't know how we are going to, you know, get through what's all going to happen but there were like 25 of these families that my wife got together and they did a dance uh, from everybody's backyard. Oh, That's yeah. how it started. And then through this year, we've been able to do a lot more. So that's how, you know, we've kind of connected the skills that you have with what you can give back to the community uh, working together. But thanks to a lot of the families and friends who have come together to work on this. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that uh, has always brought me such joy is the arts. Mm -hmm. I'm a musician oh. and I've, I've played music forever. Okay, know? I've heard of it, but I'd look forward to hearing some oh, I know, it's work a, there. <laughs> I, I've played music since I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the things that uh, it really <clears throat> brought me to where I'm at today. Music's always been a part of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of those things, like I, I've got a little two-year-old named Johnny at home mm -hmm. and I'm just doing everything I can to introduce him to every kind of art form, mm. you know, so he doesn't have to be a musician. I'd love him to be a musician, <laughs> yeah. but you know, he can do whatever he wants to right. because it, the arts are so important. Mm -hmm. And I just love to hear about things like that. Yes. that getting the community together mm -hmm. to make a joyful noise or mm -hmm. make a joyful movement together. Mm -hmm. It's what it's all about. And it brings so much joy just in the hearts of the people who are doing it, mm -hmm. but also the people who are a part of it the parents filming it, doing mm -hmm. whatever they can right. to make people happy. Exactly. You know, and that's what the artists you, do. Exactly. So cricket, 
<laughs> you yeah. you uh, you told me that you are into cricket. So yeah. I've got a couple of friends. So I've I was working at a company called uh, NetApp mm -hmm. years ago, and yeah. I had a bunch of guys there that were friends of mine that were watching we, a cricket tournament. We still use NetApp servers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> so don't they go on forever? Some of these cricket games. It depends uh, what we're talking of because now we have multiple formats. Okay. Uh, Till the 70s, the only form of cricket was test cricket. Okay. Which, to your point, uh, are five-day test matches. And to be honest, when they were, and I don't know when they exactly stopped, but even in the early 1900s, mid-1900s too, they were infinite. So you have to have four innings, basically. And so whoever, they, they weren't really with any days. And then they became five-day test matches, so the whole day would go on. And in the 70s came this concept of what we would call a one-day international, which was effectively 50 overs. I mean, originally started at 60 overs each were some of these games. And, and an over is six balls, which is, you know, if you said six pitches, if you will, uh, equivalent. So that would typically be about a seven-hour saga, uh, which was very short in comparison to five days or infinite number of days. And uh, only in the... You know, 2000s, which is only in the last 15 odd years, has this whole new format as well come in called 2020 cricket. So the 50 overs have come down to 20 overs. So you can watch a 20 over game, which a 2020, which is 20 each side bats for 20 minutes, 20 overs. So you are down to about a four hour period, which is the shortest that in terms of international Official so they, games that they can play. They've got it down to almost what like a football game is. Yes, but that being said, test matches are still played, and to the to the purest, that's what is the test of it. That's why it's called a test because you need to have skills to survive for such a long period. So if you're a bowler, you need that stamina. You need you are going to be, you know, what you do in a four over period. You get to bowl four overs as a bowler in a twenty over game, and uh, if you are a good bowler you could be bowling 25, 30 overs a day for like three days across five days. So that's the real test of skill, test of stamina. For the purists, they would still love it. It's just how do you find time, yeah. you know, five consecutive days, which means if you're going to watch, say, you know, 15 games in the year, you, you've got to just have time to be able to do that. So it becomes hard. Commercially, obviously, the, low, the smaller formats are seen by more people. Uh, but certainly the purists still want to keep the test matches going. So are there a lot of cricket leagues in the Bay Area? There are. Uh, and, and a lot is being done as people are trying to bring more, as you know, U.S. also plays cricket. And a lot of the national U.S. team has people from the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. And those countries certainly pro produce because a lot of them come with the passion of cricket. And have grown that way. There are leagues here, and they're trying to do uh, a, a lot of that. I, I would have loved to. We've sometimes played as with with friends and supporting that kind of activity. But they are also trying to be part of this whole U.S. and and there's also a lot of I see uh, collaboration with uh, the Caribbean countries because that's where you know the West Indies uh, brings in a lot of rich cricketing heritage. So the US and West Indies seem to be doing some, you know, work together in, in building some of these future cricket teams. But yes, Bay Area, you do have 
some of the leagues playing. So what is the history? I mean, is it a super old game? Could, could you bring that up? Uh, so the history is mainly said that it comes from uh, the UK. Uh, so it's really, if you see parent cricket and uh, there's another game, um, somehow it's escaping the exact name. Uh, they were about, I think, 1700, 1600s, 1700s is when they started to play these games. And baseball really is uh, really an evolved form, or you would say it has come from cricket. Uh, so yes, they were played in the 1600s, 1700s, and as the colonies were built by the Britishers, they took the game to other places and, uh, you know, play places like India and the other colonies there picked that game. And then that became <clears throat> kind of uh, one of the most important games for them. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of history when it comes to uh, cricket. And that's why if you see the, it's the Commonwealth countries, which is like Commonwealth of uh, countries that the British colonies built. Yeah. And that's how they call them the Commonwealth. So, you know, you pick Australia and you would have countries like South Africa. Uh, you certainly have the Caribbean playing and, um, uh, England, you have New Zealand, and then you have the Asian subcontinent countries. Those are the main players uh, who play, and it comes from the history of uh, the British colonial times. But a lot of the other countries are picking up, whether it's in the Middle East or you know some of the other countries in Africa. Uh, in the U.S. is playing. We don't have much in Latin America yet, but I think the other continents you have more countries. You have some of the northern European countries like Holland. Coming in, Canada plays, so you, you see more of them trying to get in. Now, you were born in India. Mm -hmm. uh, how long did you live there? So, I started traveling around 22, 23. So, I would certainly say my first 22 to 24 years the were very much formative the form for my formative years were very much in India, and I would say more around. After 25 is when I started to travel, and then I've been, I lived in Europe first before actually living in uh, the U.S. And uh, that's, since then, I've been mostly on the road with work. Uh, of course, as we said, you know, I also did my MBA, so that, that also was in there. And it's been, I think, living with family, it's been over 15 years now in the U.S., but so let me yeah. ask you a question. So your parents, uh, your parents still alive? Uh, my mom is. Okay. Yeah. Um, what did your mom and dad do for work while you were growing up? Yeah. So my dad is a, was an architect and a construction engineer, so okay. civil engineer. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, was, he specialized in marine structures. So this is how the islands happened. So he comes from um, the city called Kolkata, or what used to be called Calcutta, yeah. uh, in the east, which is one of the primary uh, cities of India, uh, metros in India. Uh, he was posted in the islands because of his specialization uh, in the marine structures, and he was part of actually building quite a few of the jetties and the dockyards uh, out in, in the Andaman Nicobar Islands, uh, living in Port Blair. And... Uh, after I was born is pretty much when he decided he was being uh, transferred to another country, actually, to do some of the other projects. Uh, I think it was in the Middle East. He decided to continue and do his own 
himself. So that's how it just happened that, you know, we stayed over and uh, I was brought up in the islands. Uh, my mom was a homemaker, but completely supported the business as the business was formed and built. And today she continues to run that mm. for the family. And uh, she's the primary runner of the whole uh, business. Uh, it's, if you will, you know, we, we grew up in that kind of an atmosphere where it was very beautiful around and uh, you, you, you were working uh, towards these projects, which were uh, pretty interesting. Uh, that being said, it was never easy because you, you do have, you know, you, you work through setups where uh, working in business and where you have a lot of licenses and you have to ensure that uh, you are keeping everyone happy in a, in mm -hmm. a large setup. As you know, historically, there'd be a lot of, you would say, work through corruption and uh, things like those always make you stronger and, and make you, you know, stand for things that you think are very important. Well, I'm and sure I would they're dealing say, with a lot of politics and stuff, doing that kind that, of stuff, right? Yes, and, and I think that's probably true everywhere. Uh, but as we've grown and seen the world, it doesn't look to be very atypical. Uh, but that being said, I think a lot of our learning growing up was uh, really seeing the world very closely at a very young age because of being involved in, uh, you know, a, a business of that kind. So when when you were going through that, going through high school mm -hmm. and seeing some of the stuff that your parents are going through what what drove you when you were getting out of high school what what drove you what did you want to do do you remember back then those days like i want to do this and why did why did you want to do that yeah and it's been i think evolving um i remember as a you know like a seventh eighth grader uh, that was a time when a lot was coming up about semiconductors and I got hooked with electronics and technology at that were you, point. Were you building your own stuff then? Or? No, not really. Uh, because we were in construction, that's completely different. Right. But because it was on the electronic side, I was getting very interested in the newer technology. So I grew up with that mindset at that point, thinking that I might go on the technical side. I, and my parents uh, were very open. They never said, you have to come back and run this business. And uh, sometimes I <clears throat> kind of curse myself to have agreed to that. And then sometimes, uh, because it's, it's, it's a good thing and you would always want to grow. But I also am amazed at how my parents let me just have my wings and say, because once you know that you, you want to do, at that point, we didn't even have a medical or an engineering facility like education in the islands. So it was meant that very clear that you have to go to the mainland and which means you leave home and right. the parents know that you're not going to really come back because then you're going to go into your own careers and on. So they were always open to give you the wings is how I took it. But then as it progressed, I did end up becoming an electronics engineer because that was my dream. And as I think during my engineering days, um, I would say that while we had a lot of good infrastructure and set up in India, uh, we did miss more research work that would have been something that I was really craving for to do more. And I think as uh, I did some of the courses in industrial engineering within our technology work in electronics, I got very interested in how business is done because we mm -hmm. would talk about business. And I would say very well halfway into my engineering, I already made up my mind that I have to learn business, which is how the MBA 
at that point seemed to be something that I would need to do. I did say that I'm going to spend at least a couple of years after my engineering, which I did. And then the mindset, as I said, evolved. So from what I would be looking at, as I said, as an engineer when I was that age, and I, what I didn't bring up is as a child, and I still would say one of my biggest dreams always was astronomy. Mm. So the space, and that's something I love now with the kids we do, you know, we sit up on apps and watch um, different stars and different planets. Watch the satellites fly over. (laughs) You know, what's going on at the space station. And I see the kids getting very energized, learning about these things today in school. Uh, That was something that was always uh, close to my heart. And now the only thing that I've done is I live not too far from NASA. That's how far I've gone, (laughs) you know, doing something about it. But that was really a huge interest, but never got to do beyond being just an amateur you know, liking it. Yeah. So I would say there's an evolution process in what you wanted to be, what you wanted to do. But I think getting into business and understanding business and putting technology in running business is certainly a theme that evolved with me very much during when I started or was in my engineering is when that came up and that goes back to over 25 years now. Uh, I wouldn't think I've... Uh, gone far away from that in what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Well, I wanted to be a rock star and, and instead I own an IT <laughs> staffing <laughs> company. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah. 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 Um, so when you talked about it before, but when uh-huh. did you come to the U S yeah. So I think I used to, I started coming here in the early two thousands and then 2005 we moved with baggage. You, you went to Europe before that. Yes. Yes. I was, where, where did you live when you were in Europe? So I've lived in uh, London for the longer time, a few years, and then I've lived in Paris for some time. I've done shorter stints in places like Munich and uh, even in Athens, which was awesome, uh, yeah. mainly for work. So we had business and I would, you know, set up some time and work out of those. And I was with uh, HSBC Bank uh, while I was in London. And because of that role, I automatically got a lot of opportunity to travel around the world. So all across Europe, a lot in Asia, a little bit, obviously in the Americas, Latin America and North America. So I've had the opportunity thanks to, you know, that role, which is why I also came to the US. So HSBC is HSBC, why you came Yeah, okay. I had completed a, a big uh, project for the connectivity to SWIFT and uh, the payment systems for HSBC globally. Mm-hmm. And we started to use the offshore setup. That was how I was into global delivery, you know, became something on my plate. So we were, uh, we set up in HSBC, the offshore setup out of Pune and later on in Hyderabad in India. And I was part of the early teams that we built those setups. And I was pretty much making my mind to go back to India to support that activity when the CIO for uh, India, Middle East, Africa, who was supporting the global HSBC work, had this requirement to take care of the implementation of the same project in the US is how I came into Buffalo, New York. He did say that he was looking at me to not just be the project thing, but also to help the overall internal relationships between the CIOs across the international organization. And that's how it took from what would have been a six month project to, you know, six years and way beyond is how it changed. We never came with the idea that I'm going to be living in the U.S. Yeah. That wasn't the plan at that time. (laughs) So was it scary? I mean, uh, when you're going from 
you know, 22, 23 years old to, you know, mm-hmm. moving to different parts of Europe and then going mm-hmm. to the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, think back to, you know, when you're younger. And mm-hmm. I, I know when I was younger, indestructible, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. nothing was going to hurt yeah, me. Yeah, there was, there was no, no being scared, I would say, because at that time it was always about what's next, what's out there. <laughs> So you were always in that seeking mode. You were not in the mode of consolidation. You were not in the mode of, oh, slowing down, right? So that that period of time, as you said, indestructible, you're like, take it on. What's the new thing to come? A lot of this I did before I had family. So, you know, there was no thing really pulling you back saying, oh, you know, I'm set up in a city and it's it's hard to move routes. So it was I guess I had like a global route. So I was moving from one. There was a point of time, I think from my age, uh, I was saying after I did my engineering, uh, completed around 21, 22, uh, till going till 30, those years, I hardly lived in a city, uh, you know, even for two years at a stretch. So it was always moving. But then that was work and pretty open to learning. And I'd certainly say that that helped a lot in uh, having the, ability to be very open to opportunities and moving on. But certainly since then, I would say I've only done two big cities, though we've traveled a lot for work purposes. We do that all the time. But uh, with family, typically you start to settle down with places. Well, what you said is a good segue for my next question. So did you come here with your wife or did you meet her here? Or where? how how did you guys meet? Yeah, so... How did we meet is a long story, uh, but it's a mix. It's uh, actually, as you know, in India, you still have a lot of families working to get people together, which is yeah. the arrangement. Yeah. And very interestingly, it was with technology. Uh, it was my mom and sister who put my name on one of the websites as oh. it was my then to be wife's mom. And they connected. And then this is the time when I was in London. Okay. And uh, she's the only child in the family. So they didn't want her to get married to somebody who would live far away from the place as it would be. Right. Very interestingly, as you see today, we live very, very far away. Right. But that was the plan. And that was one of my plans to go back and live in India is when you know I bought another a new place in Pune and the idea was to go back. So we met online uh, first, then we talked on the phone and then we met up later back in India. So I had gone back. We spent about a year in India post our wedding. And then this U.S. project. So I told her, you know, look at it as an extended honeymoon. We'll just visit the U.S. and spend the six to 12 months and then go back was the original plan. So, yes, she moved with me when I came for the longer term. I think the first couple of times I came myself for, uh, you know, shorter periods. And then she came over and we... Uh, set ourselves in Buffalo, New York. That's awesome. What, what did she, what did she think about all the traveling and uh, yeah, I think being away from family? Yes, uh, wasn't on the original plan, but I'll be uh, you know honest, saying very thankful that she was very open to look at what this would look like. Uh, wasn't stuck to the fact that oh, we can't do this. Uh, and of course, we started with the idea that we are going to be you know, doing it for a short while and then get back. Uh, that being said, it's still very close roots with the family. So it's been, you know, traveling back every year or having family come over. Right. And then it's, it's, it's just a global setup and you kind of adjust 
as a global family. There are times when you really want to be next to each other, but that's sometimes very hard. Well, now uh, with COVID, I mean, yeah, it's, it's gotten it's ridiculous. Worse. It's gotten worse. We, there are extremely sad stories uh, of, you know, the COVID world today and how we know a lot of families who are, you know, spread across and are finding it very difficult to support each other in very different and difficult times. So well, yes, I was that supposed is to challenging. be like your wife. I'm an mm-hmm. only child, so I'm a spoiled brat, <laughs> you know, um, I'm supposed to be leaving tomorrow to head back to Illinois to visit family because, uh-huh. like I said, I've got this two-year-old named Johnny, uh-huh. and except for my mom, nobody in my family back there has met him, and he oh. hasn't met anybody else. Oh, not yet. Oh, yeah. wow. So we were supposed to be going back there and doing a road trip for three weeks, but uh-huh. you know, COVID's just blowing up all over the place, so mm-hmm. we're like, let's put that in the back burner for a while, and then mm-hmm. we'll go back later on. So um, we'll just see how that all works out. But uh, you know, for the most part, we're just so blessed yeah. to you know, be in a place where we're working, you know, we're blessed to have good people around us Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, life is good. So, um, now you're at West America bank. Mm -hmm. How long you been there for? It's been a short while. It's under a year that I've been at uh, West America, uh, certainly enjoying, uh, working in the overall IT information security and vendor management was always one of the areas that I have developed into through the decade plus now um, a lot is around the information security work with you know all the changes and things that we need to ensure are happening so obviously working with the regulators in the backyard all the time a lot is around risk management well uh, let me ask you about that mm-hmm. because we're working on a big project right now uh, around security and it went mm-hmm. um when everybody went remote, mm-hmm. that had to throw a big snafu into security because mm-hmm. you got all everybody going from primarily working in an office right. to working almost 100% remote. Right. What kind of uh, things or what kind of risks did you open yourself up to with everybody working remotely? Was that a big thing for the company? So, you know, in my previous worlds, and I bring that in context, uh, Certainly, we had set up more of the remote work, and for years, actually over you know almost two decades, I think I've been myself remote working. Mm-hmm. So you know whether it was VPN or other methods, we have been doing that. Uh, so it was not net new for me to get into it. Uh, but I would say that what has happened in the industry is that suddenly your surface area for attacks has just become infinitely large because you you had generally the perimeter was your data center or it could be your vendor's data center and some resources could at some point of time work remotely so people had some basic security put in place multi-factor authentication and what you would typically look to do and an endpoint uh, you know whether it's protection whether it's prevention whether it's identification you work towards a lot of solutions there so certainly for the industry, it's a new thing because your surface area has just immensely grown. Every home is now your office. Right. And, you know, it's their own sometimes species. It's their own uh, phones. And you are at a device level uh, when you've got the attack agents coming from everywhere. Right. So this it's, it's a bombarding of the risk for everyone. That being said, at, at our place, uh, we've continued to have a lot of work from the premises itself so that's interesting when it comes to you know our bank 
uh, a lot of the strategy has been to keep the production systems pretty much air-gapped from uh, global networks, keeping it uh, pretty secure uh, from that perspective. What we had to invest in a lot is how do you work in this you know, pandemic situation? So planning around the pandemic, ensuring you're following all the guidelines, uh, work through the safety and security of people, and still have the ability, as you said, coming on remote, providing the right kind of infrastructure to do those things. Obviously, a lot around increasing security mm -hmm. uh, in that space. Uh, so we've been slower than most others who have gone overnight in just you know having to go remote. Uh, I think we've had the advantage that <clears throat> we've had the infrastructure to run it. Uh, you know, some of the things are uh, very interesting. If you look at a lot of the, you know, banks, they have moved towards a lot of global work in the last, uh, mostly in the last decade and, and, and last one or two decades when people have gone global already. And then what has happened is a lot of offices have looked to consolidate. So you have moved towards these smaller spaces for people to work in. And it's almost impossible now to send them back to that kind of a work environment right. because of what COVID does to you. You cannot follow the rules anymore unless you go back and rescale those offices and say where I put six people in a cubicle, have to now again segregate back to how it used to be 15 years ago when people had their own cubes. Yeah, because and the liability is huge. Yeah, yeah, and then you obviously don't want to hurt any of your own employees and you are actually you know building that. So you yeah. can't do that. Now we have had the advantage in, you know, sometimes when you have some of your legacy setups and you have not gone ahead and embraced some of those changes can be of advantage. So right. uh, when I look at our West America setup, we continue to still have the old cubicles, the big, you know, walls around and you have not six feet, you have 16 feet distance <laughs> right. among people. And then, you know, if you're following the right protocol, the cleaning, the masks and all of that, that certainly is something that we have seen can be done. And then, what is happening in those groups is that people form their professional bubbles, if you will. And you realize that you cannot be locked down and closed forever. And how can you work through these and still manage those risks and work? So that has been one side of the game, which is how do you still uh, make it possible for people to work in a world that was and not there anymore. But if you have the right kind of controls, what can be done? And the second part is obviously when we're doing more remote, then you have to be able to provide the technology and the security, most importantly, for people to do it. Productivity, I think, has not been an issue as a lot of people are seeing actually productivity in some cases go up, but you, up can't, yeah. but you can't sustain it. Right. Because then you have other fallouts, you have burnout and you have, you know, people can't do it. It can be done in short bursts, but, you know, in a marathon, you can't be doing the 100 meter races every minute and, you know, run a marathon for a long well, time. I think it really it really puts a lot of uh, not pressure, but it puts the onus on the managers mm -hmm. to figure out how to best manage people to get the most out of them mm -hmm. um, and to help them along the way, because this is all new territory for most people. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's it's a new hurdle for people to kind of figure out how do I get on? Uh, how do I get the most out of my team mm -hmm. and how do I help them to not get burnout? You know, yeah. how do I help them to stay away from um, the squirrel, you know, mm -hmm. and go chasing yeah. after a squirrel yeah. because yeah. I, I really can't work out of my house too much. I got a two year old that mm -hmm. I much rather hang out with, mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, well, like these that. are extreme challenges. And as 
the good thing is that the world has been working remote for a while in many cases but mm-hmm. not to this extent right. that you're pretty much having the office at home and as much as in places like the US as people say people work pretty hard right you don't you have the two week vacation through the year even you compare with some of the other continents it's pretty hard and then now the lines have further blurred between home and work and that there is really no playbook out there there is nothing which says because we don't know what this will do as an impact from a physical and mental health perspective for the whole community right right so we don't know how this is going to really work out because these are new things there's been no uh, preferred method people are learning as they go and there are going to be fallouts now humans themselves are resilient as we have seen and i think mostly people have you know stood back and are resilient and we are finding ways finding solutions and that's how you know human nature is we always are looking to find solutions and uh, beat the odds that we are against well, and- i see all the uh, i watch you know i try to stay away from most social media <laughs> and news and everything else and i see when i do watch and i see some of the craziness going on mm-hmm. and I think it's all glorified. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's glorified. I know some of this stuff is going on. But in my community, between mm-hmm. the people I work with, my mm-hmm. clients, my neighbors, I don't see any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I see mostly people that are really just dealing with a trying situation mm-hmm. and getting through it the best they can. Right. And for the most part, everything works out great. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just perspective. Yes. You know, how is, how's my life today? Mm-hmm. Is it good or bad? You know, if I think it's good, probably good. You know, if I think it's bad, the whole day is bad. You know, so one of the things I was going to go back to about the security is I have a friend um, who is at uh, a very large financial services company. And he was telling me about the amount of um, security risks mm-hmm. that they have every day. Mm-hmm. And all these foreign entities that are coming in and just trying to mm-hmm. break into their systems all the right, time. Right. It's like thousands per second. Yes. I mean, it's just amazing to me right. that that many different um, people mm-hmm. are trying to break into these systems. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just amazing. So can you talk at all about mm-hmm. that? Is that something that you deal with? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, ask any info security specialist who's in these areas you're looking at the immense number of vulnerabilities that are out there um, that we, you know, things like you have to just update your system and patch your system in time. That's one of the basic fundamentals in information security. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's on your side, what do you do? Now, remember, we all work with a ton of vendor products, right? And today, most companies and bigger you are, you have to work in an ecosystem where you've got a lot of these applications which are coming from different partners because they are best at what they do rather than you know we just going ahead and building them from scratch ourselves so now you've got a lot of this in the last five years we've had significant amount of investments made in the cloud infrastructure so you've already got a lot of these being provided from various points so you've got your data you've got your own systems which are across many different platforms, many different uh, data centers, many different countries and geographies for for most companies. So at the same time, you have to provide that data to people on their devices. Mm-hmm. So what wasn't true in the past 
you know, even a decade ago, is that everybody is expecting every piece of information right at their fingertips on their mobile, on their iPad, on their you know computer or wherever they are. So you've got both the delivery of the service happening from anywhere and everywhere, and the reception of that service is also happening from anywhere and everywhere. And while you're doing that, now the additional issue is that at least the people who were working and developing these systems or were running these systems and maintaining their systems had certain parameters, which is would be their offices and you know which were well set up for safety. And now that has now penetrated into everybody's homes. Hmm. And that's where people are delivering this from. So we don't have that secure infrastructure around the world in everybody's homes. You're left with what kind of malware, what kind of uh, uh, you know, multi-factor authentication and things like those. People wouldn't do that at a personal level. Obviously, as you said, the international or, you know, even state level actors that are looking to attack and penetrate, obviously, financial services, healthcare, these become, become the first targets because right. you've got valuable data, whether it's money or health information that allows you to then, uh, you know, cash in. You'll see a lot of uh, increase in uh, ransomware right now. Um, so we always keep saying, you know, on the phishing side, people need to be trained more. So what you needed to be trained in companies and people doing training, you don't need to know that you need your kids to understand that early because they are on the same system that you're working at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lo and behold, you have some odd email and you click on something and that could get into both your personal setups and could also creep into, if you don't have the right controls, creep into an, uh, you know, enterprise environment, right? So from that perspective, the attacks obviously have historically been on the big companies. You would also see like the target example is always taken by people, which is now a few years old. A lot of the breaches come through your third parties because they're always looking for the weakest link, right? Right. So you already had this strengthening. Now what you have to do is what used to be your perimeter was your castle, right? Your castle was where you had your offices or some of your people worked in. Now you have to build a castle out of every home, right? So it becomes almost an impossible task. So you're now in both the identification as well as in your response, you've got to get way stronger because you have to identify where these are coming from. You have to, as you said, you know, thousands in in a minute possibly of attacks coming because people are trying to see if you are not prepared for some vulnerability. And there's so many different points of entry. Right. And people are running, you know, robotic solutions to these. Right. So it's, as they say, it's, 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 as they say in, uh, you know, electronic warfare, like when you had the radar based reconnaissance, right, you would have the uh, one signal and then you have the counter and then you have the counter to counter. We learned this in telecom, you know, early in our engineering days. Yeah. But that's where you're basically jamming the other person's signal with what you have, and then you have a counter to that, right? And and you do warfare also in a similar way, right? And that is what you would say has now translated into this world where you've got the bad actors and they've got really strong technology and they have a mass of people working together. And it's the good and the bad. And, uh, you know, they pick up newer technology. You found a counter, you fight it. They again, you know, invest and build something here. The governments around the world are trying to work very closely. We see that to try and you know work from a government standpoint to keep some control over these, to do the financial sanctions and not allow these organizations to grow. But then it becomes very hard if you've got nation states involved. So it's obviously going to be the bigger targets. 
So we have to be very strong as financial services and healthcare or government entities. But we have to remember that, you know, the weakest link is always the issue also. So if it's your third parties or if it's your fourth party, like a subcontractor, right, they get in and then they slowly harvest uh, what information they have and then find a way through probably pretty minor issues, but they can put them together and suddenly it becomes something big. So for us, it's a nightmare when we are in information security. You're never going to have an easy, you know, night out saying, oh, you know, I can sleep at rest. Uh, we are fine. It's it's a constant thing. You have to evolve every time. It's not like you have one software and you're done. Yeah, because they're working all the time behind all the, the time. scenes. All the time. So you're just updating and evolving on a regular basis and trying to do the basic control systems that you should have in place. You just cannot forget the basics, but right. then you have to also be very sophisticated in how you work with these. And it's also another challenge that you've got tons of you know vendors now with the startup kind of environment a lot of people will come and promise, so I do this and I do that. So it's always a challenge for you know a CIO or a CISO or any executive to make a decision on what's the right kind of technology stack you want to have. Right. And that's where you evolve also all the time. You test, you work something out, and you have to build flexible design so that you can continue to evolve. So let's go back to a little bit of a personal thing here. So <clears throat> this is personal and work. Mm -hmm. um, with this podcast, what we're trying to do is help out people. Mm -hmm. um, and what I like to do is get in, dig into a little bit of your personal career growth. Mm -hmm. So what was a pivotal event that helped shape you into the leader that you are today? Hmm. That's a hard one to try and pick, you know, one pivot. What were pivotal events? Right, <laughs> right, right. Those events. Yeah, exactly. Uh, quite a few probably come to mind right away. Uh, and then maybe I'll share some of those. Like, for example, uh, my trying to do a global MBA, I was planning to, you know, sit for the exams for the India-based, uh, the big uh, MBA test that is done. And lo and behold, I had this opportunity come out on a newspaper that, you know, the international MBA, they're doing a test and just tried it out. and not only did I do very well, I also got a scholarship. And I decided at that time to let leave my job and go and, you know, do it while otherwise I would have waited another eight months to get through the test, do the whole two year MBA after that would happen. So that was an example, I took that and that, you know, catapulted me into a global arena where I can look at a lot of other opportunities uh, that came down the line. I would certainly say there were other things like an ex-boss calling you and saying, you know, you're great with all these uh, technology delivery program management and you've already done it. How long do you want to do that? And I think you'll do great if you tried a sales role, a, a marketing role. And I fell from, you know, like a whole different setup. And this is an ex-boss who had already moved me to two different companies in the past. And now he comes third time while I'm kind of settled in a place and doing all right. And he says, I think, and, and so this is where he puts his trust way more than I have on myself. And overnight, I tried something completely different. So I- You got out of your comfort zone. Completely out of my comfort zone. So there, that's actually, I remember uh, building brochures and flying into uh, Munich, uh, Germany, uh, into a huge, global conference 
and trying to tell people about my company and selling. What, what were you selling at the time? Software. Okay. <laughs> so enterprise software. Okay. Right. So I was used to building those. And then this was like small to medium businesses doing enterprise software and sitting out of that place, knowing nobody, new faces that you're just walking into a big conference, right? Uh, like yeah, as you would have. And then from there, I got business in some place like uh, Athens for their financial and shipping industry. Right. And they built something and came out from there. We built a significant amount of European presence from zero. And lo and behold, I look back and say, oh, okay, I can do something like this. And way years later that I was talking about, you know, coming with HSBC, uh, my CIO then, which was way later, uh, when he sent me for implementation of, you know, major global projects, he said, I'm looking at you as the person who will be my relationship role, which was then for me using a lot of that skill, which exactly. was, you know, the sales, the relationship, which I feel probably was there with me is why my, uh, you know, ex-boss had thought that I would do great at it. But you don't know until somebody Some, pushes you to do it. Exactly. And I would say that I had the option of saying, boss, I don't think I want to do that. And because I was comfortable, I'm, I'm comfortable okay with right what I'm doing. Yeah. But one data point there, I actually doubled my salary overnight taking that job. Yeah. Right. Now, it wasn't the money that pushed me, but it was really saying, okay, let me try this out. I've had, like in HSBC, I remember, uh, I was running operations with that relationship role and we had globally about 400 plus people that we were working around and this. And one fine day I'm told that some of the global CIOs got together and they felt we have some of these audit findings, we have risk issues around how we are working with our third parties. Mm -hmm. This is how I became an SME in vendor management per se and third party risk years ago when they told me, oh, now you go and figure out how to do this. So from running an operation around 400 plus people globally, this was you yourself, and we are not going to give you any more resource till you show what you need. Mm -hmm. It took me a couple of years to move up to about a 15 people, mighty team across the world, but completely different. But I was, I mean, that one, I would say that the gun was on my head, like you have to do it kind of thing, but certainly threw me completely outside of my comfort zone to figure out how to do it. I guess my bosses thought that because I had the global experience of working with a lot of third parties to deliver right. and have the relationship role as well as delivery experience, I'll be able to go fix some of these issues. But that allowed me to take a new role, build a new function, and then I have used that to build new functions in my previous two places that I've gone and built these functions. So what I really noticed is, so if you go back to saying what are these pivotal events I do feel it's probably uh, a mindset, which is to be ready to go out of your comfort zone, to be okay to fail, right. because you went in with the idea that you, you're okay to fail, to also let go because you are like, okay, I built all of this, right? This is my baby. And then you have to over one fine day say, okay, I am leaving this and trying something else. But if I hadn't tried that, I don't think I would have built those skills or be able to have a well-rounded understanding of different things that come together to make an end user experience happen, mm -hmm. right? And to know the different pieces. So I started out more in the shop delivering projects, and then I get into relationship and sales and have a feel for you know how business works as I understood business more. I was already working with the end users building these systems because I would write both you know the requirements and the specifications. So I understood that, 
but then to see how the business is run and then work with our partners and and whether it's the vendors or the third parties to understand that ecosystem in in a very large setup then i learned things like contracts like legal compliance getting into you know huge amount of regulations and figuring out what these are this is new learning so you're learning day in and day out there's a lot of uh, you know very hard work as well because you are spending hours you know under the radar going through and understanding these new things but if you have the mindset open to say okay you know I, i'm not a compliance expert i wasn't 10 years ago but i can speak to a lot of compliance now because i was open to understanding and learning that and now it allows me to work with a compliance person on one side with audit and regulatory on another for risk while i'm working on innovation on a new cloud technology with somebody else trying to fulfill a new project but i also have risk at the back of my mind while i'm designing it right right so that ability of putting these things together probably has come to me thanks to the ability to allow myself to let go of things and get into something new get out of the comfort zone so i do feel there are multiple events of these kinds that have happened where i have been open to take that opportunity with the knowledge that i can fail but i think there's been an instinct saying how can i make this happen yeah right so not worry about what would happen if it it would fail but i also thank a lot of my mentors who really put that trust on me and said okay you know i think you can do something like this and typically they've been good success stories to talk about well i think that's great and i think it's a great thing for people to hear mm-hmm. um because everybody who is in a place of mm-hmm. uh success of any kind mm-hmm has failed so many times oh, yeah. and had to step out on that ledge mm-hmm. and jump. Yes. You know, yes. and not be afraid of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You just have to jump mm-hmm. and trust that you have what it takes to get through it. Yeah. So thank you for, uh, for uh, sharing that because that's something that a lot of people need to hear. And you know, the f- part of failure as all these all the big gurus will always tell that that's the story those are the stories that don't get told much but you just cannot do any success without failure i mean that's how i look at it well i started uh, my company the day i got fired they're, they're, <laughs> you know they're, they're, it's, 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 yeah. it's something i was planning on doing i was mm-hmm. going to start my company right but i talked about it for a year or so mm-hmm. and i got fired one day mm-hmm. and necessity showed up at my door and said mm-hmm. okay i'm going to go do it yeah. you know and thank god for that you know yes. that was that was god stepping in and saying listen mm-hmm. go out and do it yeah i uh, those stories keep coming back to us whoever you talk to who's you know gone through some of these cycles and are doing well in or or have seen a lot of success i can't think of anybody who's going to be able to say that they haven't seen failure and to be honest that's the strongest thing and i remember doing you know one of these exercises and i uh, that we were in a room and and uh, we asked people to call out the year that was a very tough year for them and then we also called out to people saying hey what's the biggest success that you can look back and say i did great you know and uh, we told people to bring it up and bring it up to the board and share the great success stories and all that and then as we went deeper on those success stories you know the biggest finding you find is that those were the years when those people actually not that they did a big success 
they actually crossed a huge hurdle. Mm-hmm. So it was driven by failure. The big successes are largely driven by failure. Yeah. And that was very eye-opening for the whole group because it was random data from people saying, you know, go back to that year in your life when you had huge success. And almost all of them were not about, oh, I did a great project or, you know, I won big business and all. It was almost always driven with the fact that, oh, I did this in spite of this. I did this after I had fallen and I was in dire straits, right? So it almost always says that while these bad things happen to us, it's very hard to understand why they happen to us, why, why me, and all those questions. And then as you just said, you know, thank God it happened. It takes you that much time later to figure out, oh, that was a reason why that should have happened. And thank God it happened because otherwise I wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. And I think that's uh, a story I've heard again and again from everyone. So yeah, failures are the pillars to success. That's that's as long as you learn from those failures. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're going to sit there and say, "Why me? Why me? Why me?" As soon as you stop saying "Why me," Mm -hmm. and say, "Oh, that's why that happened," Mm -hmm. now let's crawl out of this hole. Mm -hmm. You know, then you can find all the success in the world. Right. You know, and success is just right there. You know, the the fun thing about looking back on those failures Mm -hmm. is to see that oh. Thank God that happened to me. So now mm-hmm. I could I, I could grow into the person I am today. That is correct. So uh, one of the things I remember when I first heard about you at Bank of the West was that you're very highly respected. Um, Thank you. What is your secret to success? We talked about a little bit, mm-hmm. little bit of it right there. You know, mm-hmm. stepping out for people who are looking to get into maybe management positions or just into a position where they can be highly respected as a SME or something like that. Mm -hmm. Give them a little bit of advice on what they should do to um, grow their careers and maybe grow into a different level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of the things are cliche, you know, as people say, there's really no shortcut to hard work. Cliches right? are great because they work and they're real. <laughs> you know, there's no shortcut to hard work. So if you're wanting to do something, you have to, you know, be up there doing it day in, day out. I think there's no shortcut to that. So that's a foundational thing, you know, working hard, learning something. One of the things that I've seen a lot of intelligent people take a while to figure out, I feel, particularly if you're good at something and you've been always good at at doing things, learning things, is your listening skill. I myself feel that as I have evolved, uh, it's not listening for the purpose of responding, but listening for the purpose of learning, of understanding. That, I say, has been a huge change game changer for me where you would spend more time listening to what people are saying the feedback that comes to you because we often as much as we said you know there are going to be failures and you have to fight keep the positivity and you crawl out of it which is critical from a resilience standpoint but if there are people who are telling you or you hear uh, that somebody's you know you may not be the best pal with that person and you're like, oh, that person is just trying to bring me down or things like those. There, there are those negative connotations to things you hear. But it's always good to take that feedback in a positive way. 
I feel that that's a very significant way of learning because that's right out there. It's very customized. It's customized feedback, which is feedback to you, your work, your ethic, your way of doing things, which you cannot get from books, which you cannot get from anyone otherwise. So I do feel that listening for the purpose of understanding and learning and not just, oh, I heard you, but this is what I have to say. Yeah, let me add something to that. Let me, yeah. So we, we typically fall in that trap of, you know, I'm very well included in that list. As I said, I'm just evolving and still learning how to get better at it. I do feel that that's a very important piece of seeking feedback. So not only that you just listen to what's being told, you'll be amazed that we don't often spend time going out and asking our teams, our bosses, our families uh, of, you know, how could I have done this better? Mm -hmm. And you'd be amazed at the detail that people can tell you because they know you very well. They know your intentions, uh, but often they will not open up and just come and tell you that because it could be uncomfortable in the relationship or just people don't have time or they feel that you may not be open to. Well, listen to that. If I ask my wife how I can do things better, she has no <laughs> problems telling me because <laughs> she knows me very well. Yeah. And uh, uh, just uh, kind of a joke. Mm -hmm. But yeah. uh, I, I'm uh, my book that I'm writing right now, which is also called True Ambition. Mm -hmm. um, I just put in there. My, my dad told me a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have two ears and one mouth so we can listen twice as much as we talk. Mm -hmm. And uh you know, that was something that I just put in the book because mm -hmm. I, I, I remember it from the time I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I looked up where the quote came from. It came from a Greek philosopher in the year um, somewhere between 100 and 153 AD. Mm -hmm. So the quote is almost 2,000 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just amazing that, you know, my dad told me that growing mm -hmm. up and it comes from okay. 2,000 years ago in Greece. Right. right. Um, so... It stands the test of time that we mm -hmm. just need to shut up and listen mm -hmm. as I'm talking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I ask everybody uh, because I, I, I'm not the huge reader myself. I have a bit of a learning disability, um, but I love audiobooks. So I'm a reader, but I have somebody else reading to me all the time. And when I'm taking Johnny out for walks in the morning, I'm listening to books most of the time. What is one of your favorite books either from right now or from in years past that can really help some people out that uh, uh, you would put out there for the public that uh, is listening or watching right now? Oh, yeah, I'm sure people read. There's so much and between fiction, nonfiction, there's a lot. In my early years, I was an avid reader, uh, including, and then th those times we didn't have audio books. Yeah. And uh, a lot to go if, you know, it's as a list of things to learn from. Uh, one of the books, and I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek, you know, he's uh, been such a revelation. Uh, his TED Talks or, you know, his books are amazing. And I bring that up. Uh, I remember him uh, actually in one of his, uh, whether it was a, you know, kind of podcast or somewhere, he referred to this uh, book by, um, uh, this is a book named uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. And uh, I ended up, you know, reading that not too long ago. And uh, it's, uh, it's a story uh, from how in his real life, he withstood the concentration camp days, mm. and, uh, you know, in that time, Germany during the World War. Oh, I just and, heard about that this morning. 
I was listening oh. to Jordan Peterson's uh, 12 Rules for Life, uh -huh. and he okay. just brought up that book, that book? this morning. In the and I, I heard it from Simon, uh, uh, you know, one of the podcasts or one of those uh, TED Talks or, or, or an article maybe, and I was pushed to go back and see, and it's just about perspective. It's a very, very important thing that... Isn't that you know, a guy who was in the concentration camps? Yes, he was. Okay. Yeah, he was, he was. And his story is just an amazing story of just survival, but what's most important here is that you cannot do anything with what you cannot control. Mm -hmm. As much as we all know that, we lose our sleep on things that we cannot control. And we get irritated, frustrated, and all of that. The only thing you can do is what you can control. Right. So one of the things you can control is how you react to that situation. Because that's upon you. And that perspective, I think, is huge. Uh, in how you show your resilience, in how you show yourself up to you know fellow human beings, how you respond to such situations, things would happen, and things of that nature where you don't know how long you're going to live or what you will end up with. So that's a life and death, which is the ultimate, right? Uh, whether you are you know you could be a soldier or you could be. Uh, right, uh, you know, you could be a police officer, you could be just one person in an accident and, right. you know, anything can happen. And life is so fragile, we know that. Uh, what this gets you thinking is, what's your perspective in how you look at it? Because it's the same thing 10 different people will face, but 10 different people will react to it 10 different ways. Mm -hmm. And the one big thing about resilience is how... Can you keep yourself calm in the storm? Not that you're not ruffled because you will be, but what can you control? And if there is something that you can control, it is how you react. And also then, of course, take that opportunity when you have one. Don't miss the opportunity, which is be prepared to get out of your comfort zone. Be prepared to you know, do something that you need to do to survive, to get better or whatever you're trying to do at that time. But most importantly, I think what we can do is not get affected as badly by what's happening that you cannot control. And, you know, one of the big things I go back to as a book, as a philosophy, uh, I mean, we've heard of karma all over. It really comes from the Mahabharata, which is an epic. And, you know, uh, most of our knowledge as human beings, as you gave the, you know, Greek philosopher example from 2000 years ago, the Mahabharata was written about six, 7,000 years ago. And they say that what's not in there is not anywhere else. So if you just read that whole epic, now in the, which is a, an abridged part of it is the Gita, which is where, you know, uh, Arjun is the warrior who's standing in front with thousands of his family against him. And he's going to begin the war. And Krishna, who is, you know, really the reincarnation of Lord Vishnu, who's one of the trinity in the Hindu mythology, is that, Arjun just gives off his bow and arrow and says, I cannot fight my family because it's his cousins, his, his own guru that he's learnt war from. And that's when Krishna goes ahead and explains how, you know, you are really, the body is not something that we are here for. And what's the purpose? And then you're trying to do for the right thing. And what is the right thing? and how you take your actions and you don't think about the results. So a lot around karma is all about doing the right thing 
the right deeds, the right thoughts, than thinking what is it that I'm going to get back. And that I think is very important in actions and intentions that we have. That if I'm too worried about, oh, what will come out of this, then I'm not giving everything in doing what I'm doing. Right. But if you're busy in doing what you think is the right thing, the results will happen themselves. That's karma. It comes back in its own form. If you're positive in the way you're doing with the positive intention and trying to do the right way, that is what you can control. Right. You cannot control the other things. So you put those perspectives that brings me back to, you know, that point in that war is very critical because then he is able to convince him that why he's on the path of righteousness. And this is, and that war becomes more like a metaphor in our lives that you're often going to be, you know, in, in hurdles where you're against what you wouldn't want to fight, but you are reminded that it is just your karma and the work that you need to do mm -hmm. and, and the right intentions and doing the right thing. So that I think for me is, uh, I always tell people, if you're able to go back and read those epics, uh, they give you a lot to, to learn from. And real life, you know, stories are always uh, way more profound than just fiction that people come up with. And a lot of these, uh, as you rightly said, is knowledge that's out there. You don't have to find new things. As, as humans, we have learned a lot of this. We just go through our cycles and kind of do the same mistakes that others have done. So something that we can learn from is, can we learn from others' mistakes? And one of the big things I always feel very inspired about is, okay, am I doing my thing all right? You know, let's not too much get into, you know, what's going to come back. There are going to be times when they are not going to work out fine. But at least in your heart of hearts, at the end of the day, you can tell yourself, you know, be in front of, you know, your bathroom mirror and you can tell yourself, you know what, I gave it my 100%. You know, then what happened? Not in my control. Then you can sleep well. And there will be good days. There will be pretty bad days. But on those bad days, what will keep you, you know, going is that, okay, I continue to do what I want to do. I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, someday it'll turn around. That belief will remain. I love it. <clears throat> I don't even know if I need to ask this last question because I think you already kind of went through it. Um, but uh, the name of the podcast is True Ambition. Mm -hmm. um, I got that out of a quote uh, from a 12-step program. Um, I've been sober about six and a half years. And that was one of those situations where you kind of had to go out, in a out of your comfort zone mm -hmm. to get sober mm -hmm. because the comfort zone before that was to stay drunk all the time. Mm -hmm. So this quote comes out of one of those books and it says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. And uh, I end every one of these podcasts by asking a question. After everything that you've gone through, knowing what you know now, what is your true ambition, both professionally mm -hmm. and personally, in your life? Yeah, that's actually going back to searching for meaning, right, which we were talking about. Yeah. And I guess, you know, after you've touched 40, those questions come to you more often. Is in your 20s and 30s, it's about achievements. It's about, you know, what you want to do and, and goals and ambitions. And then, as you say, the true ambition comes to saying that you've gone through these cycles and then you're asking yourself, what exactly is the meaning? Why am I here? Yeah. Why do I get up and do this again and again and again? So I 
I'm at a good space in, you know, time and mind for, you know, the family, the friends, the people that I have around. I think from a community that we have built, and I was talking to you about, you know, some of the philanthropy work that thankfully we got into doing, and I find so much more joy in, you know, being able to get back and say, okay, for my little work that I do, there's something that is impacting other lives. And in a little way, what you can help somebody, it's amazing that it's actually not helping somebody, but it's actually the joy I get by helping somebody. It's again, very selfish. Yeah. And I say that because the fulfillment is way more. You, and you will see that, that, you know, we can amass, you know, wealth, we can amass physical things, but the search for meaning is pretty endless when you're like, you can, you can have the biggest thing out there. It's like, what next? Right. And then what would you do with that? Yeah. Right. So I would say if you go philosophical, which, as I said, you know, once you cross the 40 and you're on the other side, you start to ask those questions more and more. Um, certainly would love to continue to be able to help, be able to be part of, you know, whether it's mentoring, it's mentoring people in the community, whether it's one of the tasks that I have is, you know, how do I get my uh, next generation, my kids and their friends to get exposed to some of the learnings that we have had without being too preachy because, you know, preaching never helps. Uh, and, and sometimes uh, I do say that, you know, a child has to burn his finger to figure out what fire is. You just can't teach fire without really having a little bit of a taste of it. Exactly. Right. So yes, some of it you cannot completely do by preaching, but I do believe that, you know, one of my main work now from a true ambition standpoint is just working with the community, working with friends and family and being able to help. Obviously the needy, uh, we have needy everywhere. And I realize that, you know, sometimes you yourself are the needy. Right. So you have to take care of yourself, take care of people around you. But from a true ambition standpoint, I think is just try and, you know, take the negativity out that you can. That's, there's a lot of it you touched upon, you know, you not wanting to be on social media and not wanting to see a lot of the negativity that we see around, which is purely people trying to make a quick buck mm -hmm. effectively. But the search for true ambition and true meaning brings us back to saying, you know, that quick buck is never going to keep you happy in the long term. So the sustenance of, uh, you know, joy, happiness, success, you can never have in your silo. If your friends and family and the world around you is burning, you're not going to be happy. Yeah. And it takes a while to figure that out, that you have a contribution to make in having everyone being a little happier, which will bring the happiness back to you. It's easy said because we are, you know, in that uh, fight and struggle every day to make our day meet, to pay our bills and so on. Uh, but whenever you reflect back, I think in at a time when you say, okay, I've done most of the things I wanted to do and what exactly do I want to be? Do I want to leave a legacy? If tomorrow somebody said that, okay, this is your last day on earth, right? What would you say? Okay, I wish I had done all of this. It's not so much more of doing, saying, oh, I wanted to see this place because, you know, you just realize, okay, there are like 500 other places of an equivalent way to see the place. But is there something as a legacy that I can leave and say, okay, I can go happy that I tried my best and worked well in the community, did something better for, you know, people around me. So hopefully, you know, that would continue to be my true ambition. I see a lot of good work that you're doing and we can, you know, work together and 
sharing that message across and be a little more positive and fight those negative energies together. So uh, again, we've been here with Shovik Ray today, and uh, I, uh, I thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Great to, you know, get to be with a friend and talk about life in this way. So thank you for the opportunity and really hope that, you know, people hearing this get some nuggets and um, are able to use some of that in their life. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition.